you don't mind actually standing back up. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read from Mark 10:32 to 45 this morning. And they were on the road going up to Jer- Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And talking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indigent at James and John. And Jesus called to them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and there are great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. You may be seated. If I ever feel like insecure or deflated stepping up here, Luis doesn't let it happen. Love you, brother. Um, well, I, I, I didn't think about it. So this happened while I was out of town. Um, and I didn't think about it. Did somebody just notice that for the first time? Me pointing it out? Anybody? No, you can't miss it. Um, it didn't happen during rehearsal this morning, but while we were just playing the songs, I was like, this is going to fall on Joe. <laughs> Sorry, dude, we should maybe move you. Um, we are going to get that patched up here before too long. But in the meantime, let's, let's learn to love it. <laughs> let's find some spiritual metaphor for it and just uh, embrace it. Um, it's great to be with you guys. Um, this might sound like a little bit of a non sequitur, uh, but, you know, a lot of great thinkers have pointed out this truism that shifts in culture... Um, they usually don't start, uh, like, like there's usually quite a bit of intentional thought behind them and uh, many of the ideas that sort of become popular, it might take 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60, more, but a lot of key ideas that kind of shape the way that we think and act and live and the assumptions we hold often start by really smart people uh, like philosophers. Um, or theorists of other kinds, like writing down things, publishing papers, publishing books, um, and stuff, it's the stuff that like I'm never gonna read, 
And maybe some of you will read it, but most of us are not going to read this stuff. But you know who reads that stuff? Are a lot of artists. Artists read what philosophers do, and they internalize it, and they say, oh, that's a good idea, that's beautiful. I'm going to translate this in a way that's more uh, um, accessible or whatever. And then usually through the artist, it trickles down into mainstream kind of pop culture and uh, eventually into the things that you and I are influenced by. Um, and there were all kinds of ideas in the, in the middle 20th century um, that are just now, I feel like we're seeing the weight and the fruit of them uh, as they've made their way from the academy into pop culture and into the movies we watch and the songs we sing and TV shows we laugh at and whatever else. And one of those was um, kind of postmodern philosophy, namely deconstructionism, um, movements that were, that were kind of championed and pioneered by men like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault. But basically, the, the core uniting ideas from a bunch of these different ideas is that basically truth, the idea of truth is nonsensical. Like, if you, if you follow the history of philosophy long enough, you see that, like, at some point, the idea of pursuing anything like a capital T truth is just nonsense, out the window, doesn't exist, because what could possibly ground a concept like that? Um, ideas of God had been ejected, and so on and so forth. Anything that might lend credibility to an idea like truth. Um, and so instead of, of trying to pursue truth, the idea was that, well, any, any truth claim, now in this post-truth world, any, anyone who's actually asserting truth, is re really what they're doing is trying to grab power. Really what they're trying to do is, is establish power for themselves, to use the concept of truth, of truth to assert themselves over people who believe differently or whatever. Um, and, you know, take, okay, there's all that. And then there's Superman, okay? <laughs> um, as many of you know, I'm kind of a comic book guy. Um, I guess I watch more superhero movies now than I do actually read comic books. But it's really interesting to take a character like Superman who kind of represents, he's an incredibly popular character, represents kind of the strand of like Americana in our, in our pop culture. And to think about the ways that he's been translated, it applies in the comics, but let's just take the movies over the last six decades. So has anybody seen Superman the movie, 1978, the original? Christopher Reeve? Yeah, a number of you. It's a good movie. And in it, you've got, probably you've seen the images, Christopher Reeve, the, the crisp suit, um, the hair and the curl and everything, and the picture that it portrays of Superman, who is this like nearly godlike figure. I mean, the, the creators of Superman uh, envisioned him as kind of a messianic figure, actually. But he has super strength, and he has like X-ray vision and heat vision and ice breath. It's like almost like any superpower they could think of, they just crammed into Superman. Like, let's just give him, give him everything, give him everything. And in the movie Superman, 1978, directed by Richard Donner. The, the picture of Superman is like fun, and it's like, oh my gosh, here's this really good guy who's got all this power, and it's good news for the world because he's worthy of this power. He, he uses it benevolently. He's kind. He's generous. He's sensitive. All this stuff. The movie's brightly colored. It's kind of cheesy. It's, uh, you know, it looks very, very quaint and antiquated by today's standards, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a benevolent, fun, idealistic depiction of the use of extreme, like extreme power. Well, there, there, was, they, they, there were four movies in that series um, that were all kind of in that spirit, and then the Superman franchise kind of, kind of went on a hiatus for a while until 2006. Anyone see that one? Superman Returns. Few of you. 
So it was actually supposed to be set in the same continuity as those films, um, kind of a remix continuity. It was supposed to be a sequel, though, to the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. But now, when you see Superman, his suit is actually like darker, like like the dark. It's like a dark navy blue suit, and the red of his cape and stuff looks almost more like kind of a muddled brown. And it's still kind of going for that sort of um, joyful picture depiction. It's idealistic, but suddenly, like Superman is deeply flawed. And one of the subplots of this movie, I know, I know, we're getting way too deep here. It's going to be over soon. Um, one of the subplots of this movie is that Superman left Earth to go visit his hometown of Krypton, and he didn't realize that he had actually fathered a son with Lois Lane. So he was gone for like 10 years, and he comes back, and he discovers he has a 10-year-old son, and it's basically like her, like, you're a deadbeat dad. You weren't here for our family. You left us high and dry. And so you've still got this Christopher Reeve, supposed to be the same Superman, but now he's like, abandoned his family for 10 years, and the whole movie is kind of questioning, like, do we need a Superman? Do we need this savior figure? Isn't he really just as ultimately flawed as the rest of us? And doesn't that make him dangerous? It's a decent movie. Not the best, not the worst. And then there was another one. It came out 2013, directed by Zack Snyder, called Man of Steel. Um, anybody see Man of Steel? Less, less than Superman Returns. Interesting. So Man of Steel uh, took all the sort of negative things from Superman Returns and just doubled down on it. So now all of a sudden, like the suit is like almost black. It's such a such a deep blue, and they even removed the underwear from him. He doesn't even have the red underwear anymore. Um, the film is very like the color grading is very dark and moody, and the premise of Man of Steel is basically like. Isn't power a drag? Superman in this movie is not the idealistic, bubbly, um, sort of Boy Scout character that we've seen before. Now, suddenly, Superman is like moody and broody. We find him, he's like working on an oil rig uh, with his shirt off for some reason. I can't remember why. Um, no, I know why. Uh, but, <laughs> but like, the whole premise is like basically like, it is miserable to be Superman. The world hates him. The world doesn't trust him. The mentor characters in his life are largely telling him, like, abandon humanity. You don't owe them anything. Stick up for it. Do what you need to do. And it's very bizarre, in my opinion. Uh, and, and there were some cool things about that movie, but I feel like it just was such a tragic miss on what makes Superman Superman that I, I just I really, really don't like the film. But I think if you step back, and you see this the same character depicted, oh, what is this, over like 50 years, and see that, that evolution, you get, a, you get a window into how our culture views power, greatness, authority, um, all these kinds of concepts. Um, and, the, and the interesting thing is that uh, no one seems to be arguing that, like, like, it's not that no people are saying people shouldn't have power or power doesn't exist or whatever. It's just kind of saying, like, someone's going to get it and then it's going to be miserable for both themselves and everyone around them. And even systems like communism that, you know, promote, promote serious egalitarianism, um, distribution, like equal distribution of resources, that always ends up historically. Someone ends up at the top and it's always good news for them and bad news for everyone else. Um, so we've asked this question, all that's to say, 
We've asked this question several times now in Mark, and this is the last time we'll do it for a while, but we're asking it so many times because Mark keeps asking us to do it as we work through this book. It's this, what is your view of greatness? What is your view of power? What is your view of glory? And how does Jesus fit in? And, And I ask it that way on purpose because if we're all honest with ourselves, more often than not, we have a view, we have a view, and then we try to squeeze Jesus into it. We try to make Jesus fit into how we understand how, that should, how power should be used or shouldn't be used, what it's good for, what it's not good for, how it works. Is it worth getting? Is it not worth getting? Do we reject it? Do we keep it? Whatever. How do we try to fit Jesus into our views of greatness and power and glory? In today's passage, um, Jesus is giving us his third and final prediction of his death just before they enter Jerusalem. So we have this story a story next week, and then it's uh, the triumphal entry. It's the start of Holy Week, Passion Week, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And he's, before they get to Jerusalem, he's giving a third prediction of his death. And in reflecting on his death, if we really have the ears to hear, and I pray that we do, we are forced to reflect on exactly what we want from Jesus and specifically in ways that touch on how we think about power and glory and greatness and all the things associated with those. So let's jump into it. Well, first, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we often do not have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And even baked into this story that was just read for us, um, we see the disciples getting, getting clear teachings about these things and just totally missing them, Father. We pray, uh, we, well, we confess, Lord, we are no better. We would be fools to think we're any better than the 12 disciples who traveled with you, ministering with you for three years. That we aren't at similar risk, Lord, of hearing what you have to say and then suddenly mutating it into, into what we want it to say. So we pray that you would help us not to do that, Lord. Help us take you on your own terms. And help us receive the good news that is here and may it dismantle all the idols that we tend to construct when we think about these things at the very same time. We need you, Lord. We need you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as was read for us, I'll read it again. First few verses. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And presumably, again, we have the 12 disciples and then a larger crowd of disciples, of other disciples that are following with them. And it says they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So there's fear in the air. That's the picture we get. There's fear in the air from some of these disciples. There's amazement, and then there's fear. And remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem, um, and as they're getting closer, I think that's why the fear is setting in. They know the closer they get to Jerusalem, A, Jesus has already said, I'm going to Jerusalem to, to die. He said that twice. I'm going there, and it's going to be to die. 
But secondarily, I think they just know intuitively. They've seen the conflicts Jesus has had with the religious leaders. They know that things are not going well, and so they've been kind of safe out kind of in other lands, ministering, letting Jesus preach, whatever. But now as they get right back into the heartland of Israelite religion, they know that conflict is going to come. Um, And they know that the various groups of religious leaders are going to be able to do what they want with Jesus. And so in that context, Jesus confirms their fears. He's not trying to quell them. He's like, no, guys, it's going to be fine. Trust me. Hey, don't worry. I've got this. He says, no, you're right. He gives them the third picture of his death. Possibly because it seems that they keep forgetting. Every time Jesus shares about his death, if you notice in Mark, like they, they immediately start arguing about something stupid. <laughs> like they start talking about who's going to be the greatest or whatever. Um, it's some, there's some kind of power play after he talks about his death. And so a third time he says, no, listen, here's what's going to happen. This is the most explicit description yet. Here we go. Mark chapter 10. He's going to be delivered over to the chief, chief priests and the scribes. So Israel's religious leaders, they're going to get me. That's what's going to happen to me, says Jesus. Then he says, and they're going to condemn me to death. They're going to find a reason to execute me. And... They're going to give me over to the Gentiles. That's the Roman occupiers. Remember, Israel was under Roman occupation at this time in history. So they're going to give him over. They're going to give me over, says Jesus, to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to be executed. They're going to let them do it. Then I'm going to be mocked and spat on. So as if if condemned to death is enough. And I know I'm going to face extreme mockery. I'm going to be spat on by these people. More than that, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be flogged. More than that, I'm going to be killed. Just in case you think there's going to be some some twist ending before the cross, there's not. I will be killed, says Jesus. And, of course, I'm going to raise from the dead. There's the twist. But not before all of this legitimately happens. And there are no surprises here. What what, what you're meant to see in this passage and what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus was not taken off guard by the cross. Um, None of this, this horrific stuff that he's describing, if there's one person in the entire history of the universe that did not deserve something like this, it was the perfect son of God incarnated in human flesh. The sinless, perfectly loving, perfectly gracious, perfectly self-giving Jesus. But this was not going to happen by accident. It's not happening. The cross did not happen because Jesus was taken by surprise. It wasn't because Jesus made some tactical error. It wasn't because he wasn't smart enough or strong enough or powerful enough for his plan A to come together. So, okay, yeah, we'll do this cross thing because plan A didn't work. As Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down, my life of my own accord. This plan for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, to be condemned, to be handed over, to be mocked and spit on and beaten and crucified like a common Roman criminal, or worse than a common criminal. This was the eternal plan of the triune God from eternity past. What that means is that when God, and we can, you can really get lost in this, But when God decided to create humanity, when he said, I'm not content to be apart from these creations that I am going to love and bind myself to for eternity, 
he knew that it would entail the tragedy of the fall into sin, and if it was going to involve a fall into sin, it was going to involve him sending the Son of God to seek and save what had fallen. To do this rescue mission that would be accomplished by facing rejection, suffering, and death. So if you ever have the picture of Jesus as kind of that, the surprised, helpless victim on the way to the cross, get it out of your head. This was not a mistake. This was not a fluke. This was the eternal plan of God to save you and to save me. And this is because suffering for his people is how Jesus, ironically, is going to become their savior and their king. So that's what Jesus has to say. That's what Jesus has to say. And that, again, that comes in a long line of hard teachings from Mark chapter 10. This is just the latest one. So, the story goes on. Here's where it always gets interesting. Third time Jesus predicts his death. What are the disciples going to do this time? Something dumb? Yes. (laughs) So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him. Remember, these are those two brothers, two of the first disciples that Jesus called. Um, James and John, they came up to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And that's a sly move. If you're a parent, you've experienced this move before from your children. Hey, will, will you do this thing I'm about to ask you? You're like, what is it? I can't tell you that. Just tell me, yes or no. Okay. They want Jesus' assurance that he'll, he'll, he'll keep the deal before they ask. And he says, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, this is, tip, this, this is just right. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Because of course they were. And this is just the way it goes. Every time in Mark that Jesus spills his heart out about the pain he's about to experience to save his people, the disciples react like this. The first time in Mark 8, Peter harshly rebukes Jesus. He says, may it never be, Lord. And Jesus has to rebuke him harshly. But for Peter, it's probably because he had this idea about the Messiah. What's the Messiah going to be like? What's he going to do? Well, of course, he's not going to suffer a fate like this. Whatever the Messiah is going to be like, he's not going to go and die on a Roman cross. And he's certainly not going to be rejected by the the most fervent religious people in Israel. So Peter says, no, it's not going to happen. We will never let this happen. Jesus says, you're acting like Satan right now. Get behind me. Then, in Mark 9, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. They immediately start arguing about who was the greatest among them. They literally just start this argument. Who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom amongst us 12? And now it's the brothers James and John who do something similar. They immediately start trying to get an inside track with Jesus. Hey, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I'll be raised from the dead, but don't miss this. I'm going to suffer and die. I said, yeah, but Jesus. 
can we have the place of prominence? Can we have the position at your right and at your left? Can we be your right-hand man, your left-hand man? Can we be the ones who have a seat at the table? Can we have a voice in matters? They ask for the best seats. They want recognition, a place in the inner ring. They want some say-so in the new world that Jesus is bringing. They want some of Jesus' glory for themselves. And they don't see this as in any way odd in light of what Jesus had just been saying about his death. Of course, the other disciples are angry when they hear about this, probably because they want the same thing for themselves. They wish they had been the ones that had asked Jesus for this. It's almost as if the disciples' brains cannot process what Jesus is saying when he starts talking about the cross. It's like instantly you imagine them just going, surely this isn't necessary. Surely my ideas about greatness and glory and the power that are going to be due to me because I'm close with the Messiah aren't totally irrelevant. Surely my ideas have some merit to them. Surely, surely there's something, here's this, surely there's something more in this for me than this. That question that Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? That's a, that's a key question. If Jesus were to ask you that today, what do you want from me? What would you say? We all have the pious things we, we wish we would say or we, we would like to pretend that we would say. But if Jesus came to you and said, what do you want from me? What do you say? What do you say when you pray, if you pray? What do you want from him? For James and John, we have to respect just, <laughs> just laying it bare. They want greatness. They want prominence. They want power. They want position. And they see no contradiction here because they just can't seem to understand what all this cross business is about if it's even necessary. So Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking. You want position in my kingdom? You don't know what it takes. He makes reference to the cup and the baptism that he's going to receive. And most scholars agree that he's referring to the cup. The cup in the Old Testament refers to what God has allotted. It's, it's this cup that he's prepared, the liquid he's given to someone to drink. And it usually refers to his judgment and his wrath. So most scholars agree that the cup and the baptism are both ways of referring to the death he's about to die, the suffering and the death he's about to die. And James and John, they say, yes, we're able to receive these things. And Jesus confirms that they will experience them. What we can take from that is Jesus confirming, yes, you too are going to suffer. You're going to experience difficulty. You're right as a result of following me. And remember, Jesus promises that to every one of his disciples. He promises that to you. If you're a disciple of Jesus, don't miss this. Because the disciples miss it all the time. I believe I miss it all the time. You probably miss it all the time. Jesus promises, in this world, you will have trouble. If they've hated me, how much more will they hate you? To follow Jesus is to share in his suffering. And it will be the same for James and John. They will drink the cup. They will taste this baptism. But he says the seats of prominence that they desire are not his to give. The implication is that God the Father will do that as he sees fit. You know, 
Martin Luther, he kind of popularized a way of thinking about the dynamics at play here when he talks about a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. Jesus in the first section lays out a theology of the cross. He says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And this is, by implication, this is the eternal plan of God to achieve my purposes, to save the people that I love. I've got to go do this. I've got to go suffer. Theology of the cross embraces that life, this side of of Jesus' return, is full of suffering. It's full of death. It's full of heartbreak. And if, if, if we forget that, our Christianity just becomes sentimentalism. It becomes weird, pie in the sky, detached from reality. We have no place for weeping. We have no place for suffering. We have no place for like the deep pains that every one of us is holding right now in this moment. Worse than that, it's not that we don't have a place for them. We go, well, this must be because I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not thinking about this the right way. I haven't read my Bible enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't done the spiritual disciplines. I don't serve in the kids' ministry enough, whatever. The, the contrast with theology of the cross is this theology of glory that says the Christian life ultimately is about, because I'm aligned with God, it's about get amassing power. It's about over time having more and more and more kind of privilege for myself, power for myself, less dependence on God. I'm just improving. I'm getting better. And that's not to deny the reality of sanctification in our lives. That's very real. But it's a twisted form of that. It's to say, I'm with Jesus And so things are going to go very, very well for me. In extreme form, it's the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Just write a big enough check, send it in. Things are going to go really, really well for you. In Jesus' name. I think what we see here is is a direct contrast of these two ideas. Jesus says the most important and beautiful and loving and significant act in human history, in history of the universe, is about to happen, and I'm going to be spat on, beaten, and killed to achieve it. That's the theology of the cross. God's purposes achieved through self-sacrificially laying down one's life, Jesus' life, on behalf of his people who could not save themselves. Immediately after, James and John, a theology of glory. Give me the prominent seat, Jesus. Give me a voice in things. Give me a crown. Give me reputation. By implication, let us avoid this cross business. Surely that stuff doesn't apply to us too. So that's the conflict in this story. Jesus has a way of looking at things James and John, probably the rest of the disciples, have a way of looking at things. But it all comes together in the last few verses. See the glory of the cross. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, you know. He's he's, he's applying, he's he's tapping into their just common, just common knowledge, common wisdom 
of what happens in the world. And I think it applies just as much to you and to me as it does to them 2,000 years ago. You know what power and greatness looks like in this world. Just turn on the TV, read the headlines, get on Twitter, whatever. It, it tweaks and it morphs and it changes. We become uneasy with it, whatever. But nonetheless, you know how power and authority and greatness works in this world. The natural course of things is for humans to amass power and then either through hard means or soft means to use it to trample on other people, to burden other people, to lord it over. Maybe you experience that in your job, your boss or whatever. Maybe you experience it in your family from a parent. Maybe there's some other person in your life that has some, some immeasurable amount of power over you and you've seen them lord it over you and you know the distinct pain and difficulty and tragedy and heartbreak of that. You know. You know, Jesus says. Verse 43 is incredibly powerful though. But it shall not be so among you. And that's convicting. And we've talked about this before, even in this context, as we've been in Mark, but is it true that it is not so among the people of Jesus? Is it true? I don't know. Certainly there are individuals I can think of that, that use the power and the privileges they've been given for incredible self-sacrifice and generosity, but it is it is hard to think with, like, in an absolute sense when you turn on the news and see another church scandal or whatever, that we are not doing the exact same things that the world is doing. Pastors, Christian leaders, amassing power and then burdening and trampling others with it. We see it all the time. And it breaks the heart of Jesus. It breaks the heart of God. It shall not be so among you, Jesus says. You know how it will be among you? You know how it ought to be among you? Here it is. Here it is. Whoever wants to become great. You want to be great? That's awesome. James and John, you want the seat of prominence next to me. I told you you don't know what you're asking for. Let me, let me make it a little bit more clearly. It means if you want to be great, you must become your, the servant of your neighbor. And then that's the baseline. Then he says, but you want to be even greater than that. Do you want to be first? So greatness is one thing. Let's talk about the first, the best of the best, the one sitting at my right hand. You want to be that person? You don't just become a servant. You become slave. He's using those, he's deepening that. Servant, yes, that's a lowly position. Slave is even lowlier. I think we all, we all see that intuitively. You want to be great, make yourself a servant. You want to be first, you make yourself even lower than a servant to those around you. What Jesus is saying is that you don't, you're not understanding the cross. The whole way that I'm actually building my kingdom, saving my people, starting this new family, I'm going to redeem this world is by laying my life down for it. And he's saying, 
If that's true of me, it will be true of my disciples as well. It must be true of my disciples as well. We don't recreate the cross. The cross was once and done for all time. He's the one who accomplished our salvation. But if we're people of the cross, if we're people who have received and, and taken hold of him through faith and what he's done for us on that cross, if we've tasted of it, then we begin to share in his life. We let his spirit and his heart and his motivations become ours. We let his heart of service become ours. And then he, he connects it back explicitly right there. That's the way power works in my kingdom. For even, just in case, just in case you think Jesus is like, like me, or probably like you, it's really easy to, to pay lip service to things. Hey, it's really important to serve. It's really important to lay down your life. It's really important to be generous. It's really important to give yourself away. It's important for you to do that. I'm not going to, I'm obviously not going to do it. Is Jesus like that? Is Jesus just like every other sort of religious leader who preaches about this stuff? And then inside, when push comes to shove, he uses power just like everyone else. Is that the Jesus that we serve? He says no. For even the Son of Man, this, this long-awaited figure who was going to come and put things right, he came not to be served, but to serve. He did not come to rest on his laurels and amass a bunch of servants for himself, but to serve those he loved. The one who, has, who, who is eternal God came into this world to serve those he loves. And to give his life as a ransom for many. tells us that the perp that his death is not just a blip, a meaningless blip in history. It was a ransom for many. It was the payment necessary to end our slavery to sin. It was the ultimate act of self-giving love. So there is greatness in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is not saying there's no such thing as, as greatness. There's no such thing as position in my kingdom. But he's saying whatever your assumptions are about how that works, get rid of them. It's going to be just the opposite. You hear, hear people talk about the upside-down kingdom. It's everything you think you know about how power and greatness works is flipped on its head. The way down is the way up. The way down is the way up with Jesus. And what does it look like? You look at the Son of God, perfect, sinless, flawless, self-giving Son of God hanging on a Roman cross, though he didn't deserve it, laying down his life for his friends, for his enemies. That's greatness. The single greatest picture of what it means to be great in the kingdom is Jesus on that cross. And it's no different for you or for me. That's the, that's the kingdom that we've been invited into. So I want to I end on, on this note, and I guess it connects to Father's Day a little bit. Um, but when you think about God, when you think about God, what do you imagine his disposition is towards you?
What is his fundamental disposition towards his people and towards this world that he's made? Is it one that's been, been distorted by maybe a bad father or a bad boss or a bad mother or a bad manager, an abuser of some kind? Because if, if we're trying to base what, what Jesus does with his authority and his position and his kingship on what we've encountered in the world, it's going to be so broken because we have, every power figure and authority figure in our lives has been flawed, has been broken, some of them less than others, some of them deeply more than others. And if that's your story, I'm so sorry. And I know it's really hard to disentangle when that's how you've experienced these things from, from the God that we serve. To say he's like that too. What this passage tells us is that, is that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, our triune God, his fundamental disposition towards his people and the world is one of service, is one of generosity, is one of self-sacrifice. It's one of laying down his life for those that he loves, which is everyone. He is not a tyrant. He's not a distant sort of, you know, a, you know an absentee father or an absentee landlord or whatever who's like, oh yeah, you figured it out, it's fine. He's not cruel. He has nothing to gain from you. He has no need to, <laughs> to abuse you for some end. He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve you and to lay down his life as a ransom, not just for one or two, but for many. Is this the God that you know? Jesus is telling us, this is what the God of the universe is like. And he knows, (laughs) because as Hebrews Hebrews tells us, God has spoken in many ways, through prophets, But in these last days, he's spoken in his son. He has come close to you and to me. And he said, you want to know what God looks like? To see me is to see God. So the God of the universe is the one who hung on a cross for you and for me. Is this the God that you know? Is this the God that you've been afraid maybe to give yourself over to? If you've been following Jesus for a long time, my hope and my prayer today, just encountering this passage briefly, is that today a, a little bit more you will, you will open your heart and yourself up to this Jesus and say, yes, I've been following you for a long time, but, but Jesus, here's more of me. Here's all of me. That you would not feel that twinge of, I need to protect myself because to give myself over to someone like the, to a God, an all-powerful God, is incredibly vulnerable. It is vulnerable. He's the only person, the only person that can be trusted with that kind of vulnerability with all of you. So if there's parts of your heart, corners of your heart that you've been afraid to release and to let go, this Jesus is pleading with you, just trust me. Trust him. Trust our God. Give me all of yourself. Maybe you're someone who's, you know, 
maybe you've been visiting for a little bit. You're kind of like, I don't know what I think about this Jesus stuff. Maybe this is your first time. I don't know what this is. I don't know. I'm interested. I, I want to hear more, whatever. I just, I just plead with you. This is him. This is the God of the universe. So says the, <laughs> the son of God who died and who raised from the dead. That's why we trust him. Not just because he had some good things to say, but because history records somehow publicly this man was executed and then somehow publicly hundreds and hundreds saw him walking around. So we say, we're going to trust that guy. <laughs> we're going to trust him when he says these things. He says this is who God is fundamentally. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He gave his life for you, whoever you are. He gave his life to save you. He says all you have to do to receive that gift is just to trust. To put in other synonyms, believe, have faith. It's just to say, okay, Jesus, I'll buy it. I want you. I want this for myself. I'll trust you. Josh has done a great job the last couple weeks. I've been listening online and pointing out the reality that we all trust. We all trust somebody and something at this, you know, to some degree or another. We give ourselves over to things all the time. He's the only one that's worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. You'll never meet a pastor. You'll never meet, you know, a parent. Anyone. You'll never meet anyone who is worthy of this except him. The one who went to the cross for you. Greater love knows none than this, that one should lay down his life for his friends. Amen? He did that. He did that. And by the way, the promises that Jesus makes that suffering follow, <laughs> suffering is part of following him. Those are real. And if we ever stop preaching that, it will be a disservice to you because it's just to, it's just to put blinders on and say, oh, everything's going to be fine. I'm never going to suffer. Suffering will come. And the more we can prepare for it in advance with Jesus and in community together, the better. But that's not the end of the story, right? We, we can't forget that either. A day is coming, and that's why we long for the second coming of Jesus. That's why we long for his return. And he says he's going to return Everything's going to be put right. Sin is gone. Death is gone. Injustice is gone. Evil is gone. The world is put right the way it was before sin and death ever entered the picture. So I want to be very clear that what, what, what Jesus offers you is not a lifetime, an endless lifetime of suffering. It's suffering in the here and now on this side of his return as a, as a faithful participation in, in what it means to live a faithful life in this broken and messed up world, but that day is going to end and another day is coming and we will be with him in glory. And it's not going to be by our definitions. It's not going to be by our standards. Uh, probably our human hearts are not ready to, <laughs> to receive and to celebrate just, just what it's going to be like in our, in our current state, but it's going to be better than anything we could possibly imagine. Amen? That invitation is for you. If you've already trusted Jesus, that's a promise. It's a promise. So may that fuel, fuel you in, in days of suffering. Maybe some of you are in deep suffering right now. If so, I pray that this, these words will be a comfort to you today, a hope to you today. And if you're not in suffering, it's going to come. But may they be hope and peace and comfort to you when that day does come. Jesus is good. 
Jesus is good. He's worth following. He's worth giving everything to. We don't have to fear him. Amen? All right, let's pray.